Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limudcast. I'm Tamar Libicki. In today's episode, I interview Limud Seattle 2019 presenters Kayla Higgins and David Warnock. Kayla and David discuss how their decision to lead a Limud session kicked off an exploration of what Jewish tradition had to say about the court system and policing, their respective professions. The problems of maintaining a just and functional society are not new, and clearly ones that the sages grappled with as well. In your session, you actually included um, the blessing for the government, and there was a really interesting explanation for why the blessing for the government would be included in this discussion of law and order. So I'm wondering if you could just say why you included that. When we started doing this research, a lot of the stuff that was written about this was written about like halakhic law and secular law and where those conflict. Being a police officer on the West Coast, this is not a conflict I have ever encountered. But I suppose it was more relevant in maybe the NYPD or something if you work like around the Hasidic areas or something. And there's a lot of tension about like when maybe secular and halakhic laws conflict, which to me is more of a one-way street because there are a lot more rules in halakhic law. Like I'm never going to arrest someone for breaking the Sabbath. I'm never going to arrest someone for blending fabrics or eating a cheeseburger. And I'm pretty grateful for that prisons would be overflowing then. But there was a bit of tension about we have God's law, which I think is safe to say is superior to all other laws. But then you also have these secular laws for people who don't, who aren't halakhic, which includes myself. There's a tension sometimes of how to balance that. And I think the prayer for the government is an important acknowledgement that we have to no matter how, what your level of observance is, you have to live in a society that is going to have different rules and different laws. And I don't think that often interferes the other way in 21st century America. Like, I don't think current criminal codes put, like, a burden against halakhic laws. I personally find great personal spiritual satisfaction in my job. But in some of the passages, there seems to be, like, a tension of, like, are you working for the Romans which I don't think the U.S. government is particularly equatable to the Romans in Occupy Jerusalem. So a lot of the stuff that's kind of written at that time was in such a his different historical piece in relationship to government, like when we're being occupied in the Holy Land and have all these people who are trying to like strip us of our Judaism and what makes us special and like force-feeding us pork or whatever the Roman. I mean, the Romans were doing lots of terrible things, not to make light of it, but it's different now. Jews in America were not living on, like, under occupation. We're living in a free society, which allows us to participate. Many members of my family, the first generations here from Russia in the 1900s, served in the army, and, like, our first interaction was, like, one of participation in government institutions, even though there was anti-Semitism in World War I and all that, and they were derided and faced anti-Semitism, they were still allowed to participate. So it's really interesting now how, like, America, we're allowed to be on the inside. Jewish police officers, Jewish attorneys, if you can believe it. I mean, now it's a stereotype, but 200 years ago, 
you know, we were still living in shtetls in, in Eastern Europe and Germany, and at least my family was, and living in our Jewish communities where we were not part of the mainstream. So to make a very long answer short, that's what I think is so nice about the prayer for the government is like, we're living in a time now where Jews can be participants in the government in, in every capacity. I mean, maybe one of us will be the first Jewish president sitting in this room. Probably Kayla. But, and that's why I think the prayer for government is important. <laughs> we have to think about this differently now because we're not sitting on the outside or talking about a government that oppresses us. We're talking about, okay, well, we can participate in this government. That is an interesting distinction because I read some of the sources as well, talking about the rabbis' conflicted notions of can we even turn over a Jewish criminal to the Roman authorities? And I think you're right. It stems from the experience that the Romans were very oppressive and antagonistic. And now we're in a place where we are part of the government. We're not separate from it. And we're trying to establish society and a safe society as well. And what I thought was interesting about the discussion of the prayer for the government is that some people say that that prayer is there specifically because the secular governments could wield a power to enforce laws where the Jewish institutions didn't have that same power. So what I'm thinking of is a lot of the text around instituting punishment, specifically capital punishment, is there were all these barriers that the rabbis put in place so that it was almost impossible to actually carry out an execution. So you had to bring it to the big Sanhedrin. You had to have more than a majority of votes. You couldn't make your decision until overnight. There had to be two eyewitnesses that told the exact same story who had warned the person before they did the crime that it was a crime. And there is even a source that said the Sanhedrin wouldn't even execute someone. Having one execution in the reign of the Sanhedrin was unusual. But the rabbis acknowledged that if you don't enforce your laws, then people won't necessarily follow them. So what I read researching this was that the blessing for the government was actually a blessing for an institution that could enforce, that could say, if you break this law, you'll face consequences, which I found was very interesting, the tie-in between the secular and the halachic. I think you raised an interesting point there, too, in that the Sanhedrin has all these standards, which... I mean, right now, like, you need two eyewitnesses to convict this guy. It's like, I don't even know if that'd be enough right now. You know, like, our standard of justice in this country is very high, especially in a, a capital trial. It's not a majority. It's an entire jury of your peers has to unanimously agree that you did this thing. Not everyone takes the time to really understand criminal and civil procedure. It is a very high bar to be convicted. And then when you are... I mean, I think America kind of carries on the tradition of taking capital crimes very seriously because the appellate process is, I'd almost say it is almost a little absurd, but it is such a serious thing. I think there's also a sad distinction there too, which is I never saw the crime stats during any reigns of the Sanhedrin, but I am unfortunately confident that we have a higher violent crime rate in contemporary America than they did. 
So I, I, I applaud their commitment to due process. And I think that America has tried to mirror that in our own way. So you're a lawyer. Yes. And when I was researching this, I couldn't actually find any evidence of there being lawyers in the time of the Talmud or the mm -hmm. Bible. It seemed like the victim was responsible for bringing the case mm -hmm. or maybe someone who, if the victim wasn't able to, someone else who was affected by it. And then I'm not sure exactly, I guess the person who was accused of the crime would defend themselves. Do you have any more insight into how it was done in ancient times or even in medieval times when Jews had their own jurisdictions? From what I've read in the Sanhedrin and various Talmudic laws about how court procedures were to go, lawyers paid representatives for courts were seen with suspicion and disregard by the rabbis. I think because in that scenario, the hope was that people could have a fair trial if the judges were just perfect. So they had very high standards for how to select judges, and they had this laundry list of qualities that a judge had to have, which almost made it impossible to imagine that anyone could ever become a judge, given all of the languages they were supposed to speak, all of the various moral standards that they had to live up to. I think the rabbis imagined a scenario in which the judges were so perfect that people did not need representatives. But I think for practical purposes and just the need to have cases be heard and justice provided by our courts, we need a lot of judges. We're not going to have enough people to fit those criteria. And so to give people more of a fair shot, we need people who can help out the average person in making their case. So another thing that I found interesting is that confessions were not accepted in the Talmudic system. And they said that they just couldn't conceive of anyone wanting to say that they had done something wrong. And they kind of had a suspicion of, well, what's wrong with this person if they're confessing? Do they have a mental illness? Are they suicidal? So I guess this is also very much in the context of a capital crime. But it's my impression that confessions do play a part in the modern system. Could you speak a little bit to that? Confessions are very helpful in modern courts. It's interesting because I tend to think that the Torah and the Talmud and most Jewish writings, one of the things that's so appealing about them is they get human nature right. Like they seem to really understand human beings. And this is one part where I'm a little out of step with because I've witnessed a lot of confessions to things great and small. And there's a certain unburdening of yourself, almost like a coming clean when you just admit that what you did like holding that inside of you kind of eats at you. And it affects different people differently. But some people, when they're caught doing, I mean, you don't even have to think about this in the criminal context, but just anything you're keeping from someone, it tends to feel good to release that, to, un to unburden yourself. And again, I think our court system has done a pretty good job of recognizing a confession's worth, given how it's brought out, like mm -hmm. obviously a confession gained through torture or 
some sort of physical harm, threat of harm is useless, but one that's voluntarily given post Miranda, of course, or just conjoled out through good uh, police investigation. I, that's a dilemma for me because I don't see a problem with that. I mean, that's sort of the point of the investigation. So I, I, I find that interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I also think it's interesting that the rabbis seem so skeptical of people desiring to confess because I imagine at that time that there was still a place for communal confession in the method that we're used to on Yom Kippur, where people do need to reckon with the things that they've done wrong and, and try to commit themselves to doing better. And confession is certainly a large part of Catholic tradition. People regularly confess to their sins in a sort of religious context. So I imagine what the rabbis were grappling with was maybe if confession was already such a structure, such a institution in religious life, people would only confess to a law enforcement officer if they wanted a certain kind of secular punishment as opposed to, you know, a divine reckoning. I think perhaps what's interesting about where our society is now is that you know, at least in the United States, we do live in a more secular society. And so people, I think, have been turning to our government institutions more and more to fill the roles that religious institutions used to fill in the past. And people might feel a sort of unburdening, a spiritual unburdening in confession that they might not get in their religious life. But I don't know if that's a proper role for government to be in. Mm. And it, you know, is also very clear from what we know about false confessions that certain confessions in certain contexts can't be trusted mm. and can be very harmful to people's lives. So it does, for me, raise the question of having government institutions step into these roles that religion used to fill. For sure. But the rabbi should also think that there's a lot of crimes that will not go with convictions if you don't get a confession, particularly sex crimes. They happen in private with no independent witnesses. If you can't get the suspect to confess that they knew something was happening without consent, lots of crimes will go unpunished with absent a confession. Perhaps the judges were just still such a high moral standard they could never envision that someone would do a moral wrong. So how could they confess to it? From what I've read, it does seem like the Jewish system of law as outlined in the Talmud had a lot of gaps in it. And I think that's definitely one of them. You know, if you can't convict someone without having two eyewitnesses who warned the person beforehand, and then the person went ahead and did it, then it seems like not a lot of convictions are going to go through. The rabbinical system definitely seems to weigh towards we don't want to punish anyone who's innocent rather than we need to control crime by enforcing the laws, which is very interesting. One thing that you mentioned was the Miranda rights. And I was wondering, do either of you see the Torah system of law as having rights, either implied or explicit? This is actually something that I've heard 
rabbis discuss in the past that the language of the Torah is much more focused on people's obligations than on their rights. And, and that definitely is an interesting juxtaposition to a lot of our democracy's language around rights and liberties. You know, they do seem like different sides of the same coin, rights and obligations. You can't really have rights if people aren't fulfilling their obligations to you in a society. But yeah, I do think that the concept of rights was not really the language that, that the sages spoke. They spoke more in the language of obligations. I think it's just the design of when you're living in a small mono-ethnic community where you know everyone's face, there's such little anonymity when a lot of this stuff was written. I mean, some of those concepts would be totally foreign to them. America is a country full of cities and towns of strangers, and you still need to protect each other. Living in a city with a million people, with a million strangers in it, I think there's a lot less talk of obligations, because what are you obligated to your strangers as opposed to Jewish communities when you're all bonded living next to each other, seeing each other all day, relying on each other for so many things. I mean, the power of the social norms in that setting would have been so strong that, like, I mean, exile would be horrific. It'd be unthinkable. Jewish society is more communal. American society is more individualistic, which, like Kayla says, it's the two sides of the same coin. Right. Individual rights or communal obligations. I mean, it's always the balance. And it's interesting that you talked about this idea of when everyone knows each other and it's a small community, there are different motives, different checks in play. So the idea of exile, the idea of social pressure, shame, which I think is very interesting because another thing that I noted with my research is I couldn't really find a form of enforcement. So like, how are you going to get the person to come to court in the first place? How are you going to get them to submit to their fine? So what did the two of you find in your research in terms of how Torah law was actually enforced? There's some passages in the Torah. They're sort of just mentioned in passing that there are laws and there will be enforcers of laws. Yeah, I think it was in the Gemara explanation of the Mishnah passage where they were talking about how if an individual has this obligation to stop someone who's pursuing a man to kill him or pursuing a woman to rape her, if you as an individual are not able to carry out that obligation, then you must pay someone to do it for you. And when David and I read that passage, the first thing that came to our minds was a police force because it was talking in the language of you know, everyone has this individual obligation to prevent people from committing these horrible crimes, but not every individual is going to really have the capacity to do that work based on physical abilities or other weaknesses they might have. And so you still have that obligation, but you can pay someone else to fulfill that obligation for you. And that sort of seemed to hint at a obligation to have a police force. And it, it just does come back to if our entire community was our synagogue, but we didn't just see each other on Shabbat. We saw each other every day and relied on each other every day for services. Like, how could I steal from someone in that community? Even if I'm not a moral actor, like even if I don't care about the theft, it's just like the pragmatic consequences of everyone knowing that I'm a thief and what that would mean for me to have to face these people day in and day out. I mean, how think of how strong that is now where 
in a city, you can go steal from someone every day and never get caught. I mean, th there's so much anonymity offered by that. Like, you could never see your victim. Uh, you could never see the consequences of your action because you just leave and go somewhere else. You go to a different neighborhood, you go to a different, or even a different city. I love living in cities. I've almost always lived in cities, but the anonymity afforded by them brings about consequence. Right. In one of the articles you shared as um, part of the end notes for your session, it was talking about restorative justice in a Jewish context. And what he said the purpose of restorative justice was, if I'm summarizing correctly, was to bring the person who had committed the crime back into the community so that they felt as if they are part of the community, responsible for the community, and thus following its laws was imperative to them. So I think maybe ideally that's what it's trying to achieve is to come back to that mindset of being responsible for one another even when we live in these huge cities where we don't know most people. So I was wondering if either of you have experience with that kind of system. And my understanding is it's sort of to the side of the court system as an alternative. And I'm also wondering if we have that in Seattle. I mean, I know that David's uncle taught at one of the centers for juveniles with criminal convictions. And it does seem that those programs... You know, I mean, you're not going to be able to help everyone. I think that his uncle had some feelings of success. I mean, he did, he taught in juvie and in, interagency, mm -hmm. which are programs for kids who came out of juvie. The concept of community is so ambiguous and so uncertain in America, in a city, in any I mean, any context. Like, what is a community? So, like, I, I guess I'm a little dubious about restorative justice initiatives that want to bring someone back into a community without defining what that community is. I know lots of people who live in very strong criminal communities. Mm. And I know that I've, it's very unlikely we'll ever be able to wrest them out of that community mm. because those are very tight-knit communities. Not to say that it shouldn't be tried, but be careful. Because people will abuse these systems, and that can have very serious consequences. Right. I don't know very much about what restorative justice programs there are in Seattle besides some of the ones that David has told me about. When I was working um, in Chicago, I do know that the federal court there had come up with a rehabilitation program for people with drug convictions, and it was essentially a, a group therapy session run by several judges and probation officers and some federal prosecutors where the people who who had, you know, finished serving their sentence um, and were in the process of reintegrating basically met with this group. Um, it was usually about 10 to 15 people and then maybe another five to ten judges, probation officers, and prosecutors. And they would just share journal entries from the past several weeks, you know, how they were doing as far as getting work, as far as reconciling with their family members and loved ones, and what they were doing to stay off drugs or stay away from alcohol. And I think 
the benefit to being part of this program was getting extra resources and help through the federal government to get better jobs and and things like that. So that was, I think, a very uh, limited program in that, you know, it was, you know, only a few people at a time and it was, you know, a pretty small group, but it did seem to benefit the people who were involved, just sort of having this system for for check-ins and accountability and a place to share their struggles and share their stories with each other. So that's sort of less on the end that David's been talking about where, you know, it's sort of a diversion program. So instead of going into criminal proceedings, you're sort of gone, you go through this restorative justice process. This was sort of a more like reintegration Mm. post-prison program. Right. Okay. So last question. This is a bit of a two-parter. Why did you two decide to teach this class at Lee Mood last year? And also, I'm wondering, you talked about how you opened it up for discussion after you had the Chavruta study. Did anyone come out with some ideas that surprised you? Well, I think one of the reasons we decided to do this session and, and this topic is because it's something that the two of us talk a lot about with each other anyway, sharing general perspectives on our criminal justice system in this country, what its flaws are, and but also where, where it's working, and just some of the challenges we always come across in our day-to-day jobs. And I think that we both were, you know, looking to the, the Torah and the Talmud to see if they could provide some wisdom and insight since the problems of maintaining a just and functional society are not new and clearly ones that the sages grappled with as well. So I think, you know, in, in both of our relationships to Judaism, you know, it's always comforting to turn to the wisdom of our tradition when dealing with, you know, big social issues. Seconded. I, I think Kayla and I started this out as we just wanted to grow in our own Jewish learning together. And this was a topic we're interested in and wanted to know more about. Um, and I, I know both of us take our job seriously and our Judaism informs our work and vice versa. As to the second part, I know there was, but it's been <laughs> seven months, so I can't recall specifically. It was a good group thanks to all who attended. Yeah, I mean, I think I remember that, you know, when people were going through some of the passages in Chavruta, there were certain lines that stood out to them that were not necessarily connected to the theme of law and order, but just something like the rabbis would punish someone to death for doing this, or, you know, I can't believe that, you know, they used this language to describe this crime, you know, and that's always going to be part of the fun of doing a text study is that different parts of the text are going to jump out to different people. That was sort of an unexpected direction that some of the conversations went, but was still fun to see. Text study is really tough if you go at the text like it was written in 2019. You can really lose the meaning by trying to read this through a completely contemporary lens. And some people had difficulty with that. Yeah, I know I do. It's very hard to put yourself in the mindset of 
someone 2,000 years ago, especially since we have a very incomplete picture of what that mindset was based on and what the culture was. Right. For sure. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you, Tamara. This is great to discuss with you. Awesome. Thanks for having us. The Seattle Lee Moodcast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Lubicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guests, Kayla Higgins and David Warnock.